When Jacques Cartier met the indigenous peoples of this land in 1604, he wasn't there to make new friends. His mission was to claim as much of the land as possible in the name of France. Others were there to do the same thing in the names of England and Spain. To the early settlers and explorers, land equaled money and power. It did then, and for many people it does now. Some of us still view land simply in terms of the money it can generate, whether that's from logging the trees, mining for gold, digging up oil and gas, or developing real estate. But now we're confronting the harsh impacts this approach has had for climate change and for Indigenous peoples. So what can we do differently? Hi, I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon from Sierra Club BC. In this episode of Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond, we explore how we think about land, how we could be thinking about how we use land, and what we have to do to make change happen. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Sue. First contact is sometimes described as a rather benign get-together, but that was far from the truth, wasn't it? Indeed, there's certainly nothing benign about imposing colonial rule on Indigenous peoples who've been living on the land, using the land, managing the land since time immemorial under their own systems of Indigenous law and governance structures. But that didn't fit in with what the European kings and queens wanted to achieve, did it? No, it was very inconvenient. When when the kings and queens were sending explorers from Europe to claim as much land as possible, uh, they, they, you know, as if the act of putting up a flag could somehow erase the presence of people who had been there for since time immemorial, um, they were doing that for profit. And so it was more convenient to assume the Indigenous peoples were not on the land, and in fact to actively remove those Indigenous peoples from the land because the perspective that the Europeans were bringing was one where sort of prior, maybe older traditional models of collective land ownership in Europe had been overthrown and the the predominant perspective was that land ownership equals power and that's held in the hands of a very few. And so this was the system that was being imposed on Turtle Island, what's now known as North America. The concept is called terra nullius, this assumption that the land was empty when the Europeans arrived, which is very problematic. It's the basis for all of Canadian law, and it, it erases the presence of Indigenous peoples from the landscape when, in fact, they were there with their own governance structures and their own legal traditions. A vital civilization, in fact. Absolutely. And we're not going to replay history in this episode, but we are going to look more deeply into how we might shift to a more sustainable relationship with the land, such as the one that Indigenous peoples had for thousands of years. And we want to talk about one place in BC where this clash of values of personal versus collective land ownership and an approach to sustainability is playing out with serious consequences. And that's in northern BC, where the coastal gas link pipeline is literally bulldozing through Indigenous lands to build a pipeline for fracked gas. Um, my traditional name that I just received um, is a hereditary chief named Slado. My English name is Molly Wickham, and I belong to the Gidim Den clan. I'm so honoured to be here. And Molly Wickham was in Victoria as part of a speaking tour organised by Canadian Physicians for the Environment. She was there to inform British Columbians about the impacts of fracking. And she told the crowd why the pipeline is so devastating to the Wet'suwet'en nation. Our yinta, that's what we call the land, the water, the air, the animals that live on the land. Um, it includes, it's a holistic idea um, of the territories that we survive on, that we come from. Um, so why are we resisting all of these major LNG projects? 
Obviously, the environmental and the health impacts we've heard and are devastating to communities. Those we know, we've done our research, we know what fracking is, we know the impacts that fracking has, um, and, we, and we've come to the conclusion over and over again in our feast hall, in our governance hall, that no, the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en Nation, all of the five clans have stood up in our feast hall, in our governance, and said we will not allow pipelines in our territory. Whether they're gas pipelines, whether they're oil pipelines, we will not allow it. And the reason we won't allow it is because of this quote from the late Mahlakle, one of our Denise, one of our hereditary chiefs. He was the oldest plaintiff in history in the Delgamuka Stayway court case. And he said, we are the land and the land is us. It's this belief and this saying is both ancient wisdom and common sense. Molly was very clear. The hereditary chiefs are saying no to the pipeline. Yeah, and Caitlin, the key words here are hereditary chiefs. In Canada, there is a, a parallel structure of elected band officials, and that's called the band council. And when I spoke to Molly after her presentation, she told me that it's really important to differentiate between hereditary leadership and band councils. Well, the decision was made by the province and the industry and all of the investors, and there wasn't any consultation, meaningful consultation, with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, which is our traditional governance system, which has never stopped. It's been in continuation for thousands of years. We still practice it to this day, and because our hereditary chiefs have consistently said no, no, no pipelines through our territories, they went to the band councils and and asked for their permission instead. The province has never given the bands any say over the territories. They've only ever given them the authorities, um, false authorities, over the reserve lands and the reserve issues, like a municipality. And so now, all of a sudden, because the hereditary chiefs say no, they're giving bands this false authority over the whole 22,000 square kilometers of territory. It's causing a lot of conflict in our community because those are our community members, those are our family members. Um, those are people that we love and care about. And they're doing what they think is best for the reserve, for the community. In an ideal world, how would you and your surrounding communities make decisions about land use? Well, we actually have a complex system of land use that's according to our traditional governance. And so the clans and the houses have a collective decision-making model. And so that looks like um, everybody having their input and then the house chiefs and the chiefs of the clan making a decision about what's going to happen. So that's what that looks like in terms of how do we keep what we have and build and strengthen our future and we know that that has to be around our culture and our identity otherwise we'll cease to be Wet'suwet'en people. How would you say we should be governed in terms of our approach to land use in the future? A responsible use and a holistic idea of what are the essential needs of our people. And that includes spiritual sites, that includes cultural identity, that includes salmon and moose and all of those things. In our area, tourism 
we have a huge tourism industry. We could say goodbye to that if the LNG project goes through because it's going to destroy our salmon. We have renowned, uh, renowned fishing sites that people come from all over the world to fish in Wetzinkwa, to fish steelhead in our rivers. There's huge industries that would be impacted negatively and that would be essentially wiped out just for one big, huge uh, mega project that's not really going to benefit anybody in so-called BC or Canada. There really is so much at stake, isn't there? This question of who decides how to proceed with development is really serious and goes far beyond simple ownership. Yeah, it's equally important to look at the impact of development beyond its potential for profit. And it's important not to lose sight of that when it comes to the development of renewables as well. I spoke to Caleb Bain about that. And so the first clean energy, quote-unquote, in British Columbia was built on my family's trap line using my family's name on territory critical to a life form that's been extirpated. Caleb is Echodene and Dene Zakri, but he wants to be clear that he's not speaking for anyone else. He's just telling his story. He's a lawyer and an activist who learned that just because the development is clean energy, it's not necessarily a good development. The first industrial wind farm in British Columbia was Doki Phase 1. The first point I'll make is that my mom's last name, Doki, as an anglicization of uh, Dake, uh, a really important word in Dinosaur culture. And they stole our family name to, like, name the first wind farm. And they located it through a problematic environmental assessment process uh, up in critical uh, high country uh, wintering habitat for um, the boreal caribou, which are critically endangered. And that was without your family's permission? Poverty has been manufactured to manufacture our consent. Free, prior, and informed consent doesn't exist in a highly asymmetric power environment, right? When, when someone has nothing and, and has no access to the language of power, the mechanisms of power, the, the resources of power, then how can they functionally consent? And so my family's experience and my experience was... Uh, quite challenging because on the one hand we knew the project would proceed in particular because at that point this is before BC Hydro lost its mind over Site C but um, there was a lot of work being done on clean energy uh, in the mid-2000s in BC and what I hope your listeners understand is that your land can be raped just as badly by a wind farm or a solar farm as it can by fracking it's you know it would be nice to believe it's different. You know, you've got one tiny wind turbine above Vancouver and it makes, you know, the urban greenies feel cool. But try praying in the most sacred part of your territory, which is uh, Klinseza. It's the Twin Sister Mountains up in the upper Moberly River watershed, uh, the most sacred place for the Danisa people and many other peoples. And you go up there and pray, looking east towards the morning sun and you see the flashing lights and the 90-meter blades of these wind turbines. There's about 150 of them now on all the ridges, disrupting your prayers and disrupting the morning sun as it touches the earth. And, you know, you tell me how clean that is because, you know, the songbirds can't go up there, the birds of prey can't go up there, the caribou don't go up there because they don't like anthropocentric disturbance. And the, that's the curse of the wealth that our people had, that, that you were the sacrifice zone. And to be sacrificed for what's ostensibly clean and green 
is both insult and injury, in my view. So how would having Indigenous perspectives informing the wind farm decision changed things for your family? Well, to their credit, the wind farmers were the most ethical of the resource exploitation crew that exists in Northeast BC. I mean, they're way better than fracking, they're way better than oil and gas, they're way better than hydro, way better than forestry and coal, but it's still a violation. Um, I think, firstly, had an Indigenous worldview and perspective been meaningfully incorporated, the interconnectedness of these developments to prior developments. Like, the reason the caribou are gone is related to multiple systems of development, in particular coal mining in northeast BC, uh, the hydroelectric development in the 60s and 70s, the W.C. Bennett Dam, Peace Canyon Dam, and then, of course, rampant oil and gas. And so an indigenous perspective says, like, the land cannot carry anymore, so maybe you guys should, like, relax and step back and let some things heal first. Crazy, I know, but that's the idea. Uh, and that worldview would have forced an analysis of cumulative impacts. It would have forced an analysis of ecosystem function. It would have forced an analysis of the interconnectedness between this system of energy exploitation and others. Uh, that didn't occur. <clears throat> And, and I wish people reflected deeper in a more serious way. And I think that's what the Indigenous worldview would have brought to that analysis. As I listen to Caleb's story, I realize we have to keep in mind that in this transition to renewable energy, there are a lot of considerations. Yeah, and that it's more complicated than just switching to renewable energy and keeping everything else the same. As As Caleb was talking about, we really need to look comprehensively at how we're using the land and what the limits to those use might be and where in fact we have surpassed those limits. The Blueberry River Nation in northeastern BC is in court for just this very reason. They're concerned about the cumulative impacts of that there's been so much forestry and and mining and gas exploration in their territory um, that they're very concerned that their treaty rights are in fact being violated. So they're they're in court um, to say that there's limits to development and that they've reached that limit. And this concept is something that the emergence of Indigenous law is making clear. Yeah, we're going to take a short break. And after the break, we'll look at what Indigenous law can teach us about how we use the land. Hi, I'm Sierra Da Silva, and I lead the education programs at Sierra Club BC. So we have a series of going wild workshops for K-8 students that we offer for free in schools across BC. Kids have the opportunity to touch different plant and animal species and shells, and we also take them outside to explore the ecosystems on their schoolyards. Kids get so excited when they have the opportunity to hold different species in their hand and examine them closely and learn about human relationships to them. I get so excited when I see their their passion for understanding nature, and also I feel more optimistic about a world where kids have a connection to nature. If you're a parent or educator, you can give us a call or visit our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash education to book a workshop and find resources in both English and French. Hi, welcome back to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon of Sierra Club BC. And in this episode, we're talking about how we should approach land use in BC. In a moment, we're going to look at 
using Indigenous perspectives in making decisions about land. But first, I want to go back to northern BC, Caitlin, and talk about how we currently protect the land that's used to grow food. Now, Jim and Pat Strasky are from Farmington in the north. Jim's family has farmed there for decades. Then came fracking. Jim and Pat joined Molly Wickham on that speaking tour of BC to let people in the south know what fracking has done to their ability to farm. Good evening. Um, Jim and I are grain farmers, as was said, and uh, Jim has lived on this particular area for his whole life, and his father farmed there and his grandfather farmed there. I came as a teacher for a year and somehow stayed 33, and so it's a passion for us to be home working on the farm, and that's our main source of income. So our story reflects how gas and oil has been um, part of what we've gone through in order to put a crop in and take it off. Um, We just also want to make sure that everyone understands that this is our story and we represent a larger voice in the piece. We are two people who um, participate in a variety of activities and things that help bring our community together. And we are surrounded by ranchers, farmers, other rural residents, and as you can see, we have a doctor and a, and a scientist who now not only are bringing their professional skills to this story, but this is a personal story for them as well. And when it becomes something in your own backyard, the rules change. So when Jim takes the podium, he moves through his slideshow, and he's talking about some of the ways the fracking infrastructure is interfering with his ability to farm. And this is a a pipeline right away that I've been trying to farm, and um, this is about uh, two miles away from a compressor station. So as this gas comes out of the ground, I think there's heat, you know, further uh, deeper in the earth, but as as it is mechanically compressed and uh, moved down the line, uh, kind of law of physics, it releases heat. And I've struggled to grow a, a proper crop on this because it, it does not freeze in the in the winter time and the snow melts and goes into that line there. That line is buried uh, one and a half meters below ground. But then in the summertime with all that heat there, it dries out so that it, it uh, so I've several meetings about this and I've kind of failed to, uh, to get anywhere there, but I, I kind of feel like um, I, I'm subsidizing this industry on this uh, project here, and I, uh, to me, there should be a little bit more uh, work done on that. Now, Jim and Pat stress that they aren't necessarily against fracking. They know many people who work in oil and gas, but the intrusion into their rural way of life is just too high a price to pay. It reduces your quality of life, and not to mention that the industry that provides our food, or literally our bread on the table, is what's being interrupted. I mean, there's many stories we haven't said and, dr- and Jim has left out, but um, yeah, when you can't get into your own field because there's frack lines on it or the um, entrance to the field is blocked, all those little things just add up. Back in the 1970s, the government of the day established the Agricultural Land Reserve, to keep arable land available for producing food. 
And for years, this ALR land was was solidly protected. But lately, we've been seeing the erosion of this as fracking expands across BC's northeast. Mm -hmm. Last year, the provincial government conducted a review of the ALR. And the panel found considerable encroachment from these extractive industries onto farmland. And one of their recommendations was to ensure that the impacts on agricultural land must be considered before any extractive resource project can go ahead. Given that we all eat, that that would make sense. <laughs> something, you know, it seems like something is definitely going wrong if we're not even able to protect the land that grows the food that we depend on. Definitely. We spoke a little earlier about turning to Indigenous principles to shape an approach to land use. How would that work? Well, I put that question to Gordon Christie. I'm Gordon Christie. I'm professor at the Peter E. Allard School of Law at UBC an uninvited visitor to the unceded ancestral territory, the Musqueam, and I'm my mum's side of the family is from the Western Arctic, from the Nuvialuit community. Pretty much all my, my thought goes into Aboriginal law or Indigenous law or the intersection of those two. Let's start with a simple question. What is Indigenous law? I just mentioned that there, there are two kinds of law that I think about lately. Uh, Aboriginal law is what uh, I spent much of my time working on for the first 10 or 15 years, and it's really Canadian law as it applies to Indigenous peoples, and there's a lot of jurisprudence on that front. Indigenous law, most people nowadays are reserving for the law of Indigenous communities, which has existed for countless generations, and that's coming more to the surface now. We're beginning to see people talk more about the fact that Indigenous communities across Canada have had their own legal systems for a long time, and those are now being considered, at least in the Canadian mindset. So can you describe Indigenous law, particularly as we're talking about land in this episode, in, in its approach to land use? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it's, it's too big a question. There, indigenous law is, again, the law of Indigenous peoples, and there are, depends on how you count, uh, there are at least 60 to 80 Indigenous nations across Canada, but really at this point in time we're talking probably about hundreds of different smaller uh, Indigenous communities, each with their own ideas about what their traditional legal system would look like, what it um, manifests into today. It, it covers an enormous spectrum of possibilities that you can't recapture really in just a couple of sentences. I mean, when we're talking about land, which is the focus, I guess, today, then um, you have communities across Canada that have a whole range of perspectives on land. Some are more or less comfortable with the Canadian system and just want to have more say in how that system works. Others are trying to um, put a parallel system in place you know, based on how they understand the relationship to land um, should be up upheld today. What principles would be in that kind of parallel system? What principles would be underlying yeah. the approach? Yeah. Again, it depends. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there are definitely people who've isolated certain commonalities between all the systems across North America, but uh, I think that, that should be done carefully because um, I think anything that you come across that seems to cover all communities is going to be pretty general. But still, that said, um, I think it's clear that for those communities that are going back and revitalizing their traditional ways of thinking about connections to land, there was always a sense that the debate is not about the rights that people have in relation to land, but about responsibilities people have as communities to land. Most, most Indigenous peoples across Canada and across North America have some sort of a, a narrative that describes how they are where they are, a creation story of some sort. And it almost always is centered on this notion that they were put in a certain place in order to occupy a very particular set of responsibilities in relation to that place. 
Do you have a concrete example or how that plays out then in terms of um, a decision made about how to use land in a certain circumstance using those principles? I'm cautious about examples. I, I don't want to, because when I say, you know, these people are doing this, it has to be understood that I'm an outsider um, in all those examples. So I, I, I've been following the Unistoden camp for many years now, and um, they are a, a living example of this in play. From an outside perspective, I can see what they're doing, and what they say they're doing is pretty clear. They're trying to go back to the house system and the clan system and talk about the responsibilities of that piece of land and, and trying to uh, put that up against the Canadian system that just thinks that it can make decisions about running pipelines through, for example. Is there anywhere in the Canadian system that has any sense at all of responsibility to the land? Uh, I don't know. A good question. <laughs> You're probably, probably best to speak to some of my environmental law colleagues because I, I know that there have been many calls for that kind of approach over the decades, the last X number of years, but... I don't know whether in Canadian law there is yet something that actually is grounded in that. I think there are aspects of environmental assessment, for example, that pay attention to these concerns, but I don't think they ground themselves in those concerns, so I I don't know. And in, in those were sort of very specific examples to do with environment. But if we if we looked at it as a bigger picture, if yeah. you like, um, what, what could we learn from the way ind- Indigenous law is being applied or trying to be applied in certain circumstances that you think would be useful to bring into Canadian law? Well, you actually touched on something when you when you said that my response was focused on environmental law. That, that is what happens in the Canadian system is you get these separate discussions in these little areas. And in an Indigenous perspective, again, this is said with caution because it differs across North America, but you do see many Indigenous peoples approach things from a more holistic fashion. If you're going to have a discussion about your relationship to land, it should include all the different ways in which people relate to land and the land relates to people. And, uh, you know, there's just this much more uh, wholesome view of, of making these discussions um, take place on a level where everything is on the table, not just this question about, you know, whether there should be concern about this species in this spot. It's about the ecosystems. It's about how humans just basically fit in with the environment. You're telling me about um, a lot of the complexities when you go from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a, a danger that, that um, some people in Canadian law, in, with all good intent, are appropriating some things or romanticizing some things when it comes to Indigenous law? Like, How do we find our way with, with some sense of what's real and what makes sense to do? Simple question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, I mean, there are definitely those people out there. I've seen them from different perspectives coming with this argument about how talking about Indigenous laws, romanticizing um, a long ago set of practices or ideals and values. But on the other hand, I'm aware of quite a few Indigenous people who um, are very clear-eyed about what they're doing. They're, They're not attempting to reconstruct something that didn't really exist in the past that they've romantically imagined. I, I think there there always was, at the grounding of most Indigenous communities across Canada um, in the past and emerging today, the sense that, that uh, the, the relationship to the land is one of the land providing for humans. Humans are, are here really at the sort of generosity of all the other spirits out there, that we are really if anything, sort of a minor part of this big picture, we have a very particular role to play because we can affect 
the relationships that exist on the land, both our relationships and other creatures' relationships with themselves and with us. But in the big picture, we're just part of the system. Like that, that's part of the, the problem, I think, on the Canadian side of things, is the sense that there's humans and then there's the world, and we have to manage this relationship with the world. We're, we're part of the world. Right? We're, we're part of the ecosystems. Um, we have very particular skills and responsibilities, but we're just part of this larger system. It requires us to create laws, not necessarily in the human self-interest, but in the yeah. entire self-interest. Are, are we any good at that? No, <laughs> I think I think it, it's it's possible to do so though because it, it, there isn't some sort of uh, again romantic vision of doing things in the interest of the world and not in the interest of humans because if you do things in the interest of the world as a whole you will be fulfilling the interests of humans because again we're part of it so I think it's just getting that idea across that it's not as though we're saying you know indigenous peoples are saying you know we we should um, forsake all economic development for example well. That, that can be possible as long as the larger vision around economic development is of ma- maintaining the world as a, as a large global set of interconnected ecosystems because we're part of it. And, and you know, if we don't do that, then we're going to suffer. But that's not, that's not the, the goal is to make sure humans don't suffer. The goal is to focus on the world. And then as a wonderful outcome of that, we'll have a much better place to live. Within the legal community, is this starting to be the the subject of, of much debate, or is this still a, a thought or a notion that's on the fringes of, of chat? Uh, again, I think it depends on, on where you happen to be. I mean, I, for me, it seems like this is something that's expanding and growing day by day, but I also am aware of the fact that I'm located in a very particular place. At UBC and at UVic and a few other law schools in Canada, this is becoming quite a hot conversation, you know, getting Indigenous law into the mix with everything else. But I'm also aware of the fact that there are many other law schools, um, not so much in Canada, but a few in Canada, but particularly in North America, where, you know, if you came and talked to them about this, there would just be blank stares because <laughs> they haven't given this any thought. And so in the larger world, I think there's still yeah, a mountain to climb. Worth climbing. Yeah, you know, worth, worth climbing. But I, well, I'm neither pessimistic nor optimistic. I, I, I hope things continue in this direction, but they really have to explode if they're going to take over how we think about the world. And the dominant view is still extremely dominant, and that is just to use the world as a resource for humans. That was Gordon Christie from the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. And you can find out more about the study of Indigenous law on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca. You know, Sue, I've personally been finding it really inspiring to be learning about Indigenous law and what it can teach us about our relation to the land, to all the critters out there, and also to the mountains and the rivers that are also considered our relations, as well as to each other. And I often hear the saying, if we take care of the land, it will take care of us. So, you know, for those of us who are non-Indigenous, one part of our responsibility can be to talk to our governments and ask them, Are they taking care of the land? Are they respecting Indigenous law? Let's not forget, there will be a federal election this year. Yeah, and although land use sometimes falls under more local or provincial jurisdictions, we've seen with the coastal gas link and the Trans Mountain pipelines the effect that our federal government can have. So an election is a good time to get involved, to be talking to the candidates in your riding, finding out what they think. And I want to wrap up this episode by going back to Molly Wickham for some inspiration. So we know that healing on the land and that doing this work 
and protecting the land is our only way forward. Um, we know that the displacement of our land has created anime. The destruction of our governance system has, has increased the number of suicides and loss of identity for our people. So we know that reconnecting to our land and that living off our land and being um, in a deep relationship with it is a way that we're going to move forward and that we can heal from what's gone, what's happened to our people. We know that Aryinta cannot survive even one fracked gas pipeline. We know that. We're basically fighting for our lives and we do not intend to lose. And that's the truth. And land use kind of sits at the heart of our next episode, too, Caitlin. We're going to be talking about electrifying transportation. In our last season, we talked about the move to electric cars, but this season we travel further into the topic of transportation. We're going to look at what we need for meaningful, clean mass transit. And we're going to do some blue sky thinking about what the future of transportation could look like and its implications for democracy. So we hope you'll join us. And that's it for this episode of Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. And you can find out more about the Wet'suwet'en Nation's opposition to the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline online at sierraclub.bc.ca slash Wet'suwet'en-Solidarity. And you can find other links and photos and show notes at our podcast website, sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. We want to thank you for your support of this podcast, especially those of you who have donated, which has allowed us to publish this podcast series. We also want to thank the North Growth Foundation for its support. And if you'd like to hear more podcasts, please consider making a donation at sierraclub.bc.ca. My thanks to Caitlin Vernon from Sierra Club BC. Thank you, Sue. And thanks also to Kat Zimmer at Sierra Club BC for her invaluable help with publishing the podcast. And thank you for listening.